Hi, it's dating coach Chris Luna from Craft Charisma. Welcome to the Craft Charisma podcast, our free audio coaching program where we interview the top experts in the world at helping you become the man you've always wanted to be. My guest today is Gary John Bishop. Gary is a leading personal development expert and coach who has impacted thousands of people worldwide. He's known for using an urban philosophy approach to coaching and transformation that really represents a new wave within the personal empowerment and life mastery industries. He's been able to get what many people would describe as miraculous results in the quality of their life and in their performance in the areas of their life that really matter the most to them. He's the best-selling author of the book, Unfuck Yourself, Get Out of Your Head and Into Your Life. Gary, can you tell me a little bit about your background and what inspired you to get into personal development? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I I guess uh, it really started with, I was never really into this whole idea of personal development. I was kind of like the antithesis of personal development. I thought it was mostly woo-woo. And um, a, a member of my family had asked me, they actually came right out with it and said, you know, I'd like you to do this workshop. Which, you know, my, my skin was crawling at the idea of something called a workshop, you know. Um, but I said, all right, I'll, you know, I'll do your stupid course. And that was actually the words that I used. I didn't say anything. You know, that was actually what I said. I'll do your stupid course. And I, and I went into it just, you know, in this, in this kind of internal dialogue, like saying to myself, I swear to God, the minute they ask us to hold hands, I'm out, you know. And, um, but I went in there and it was not that at all. You know, it was really confronting and challenging and called me out on what I thought was okay behavior. And um, I came out of there like I'd just gone through a car wash naked, you know, like my skin was tingling. I was like, oh my gosh. And uh, I realized that there was, there was, I'd been, um, I realized in that time that I had been totally neglecting my development as a human being, like I'd neglected it. It was some one of those things that I thought just took care of itself. So I started to do a little bit of work on it. And the more that I worked on it, the more I realized that I was kind of growing this muscle for being able to talk about it to people in a way that they were getting something out of what I was saying. And uh, in pretty short order, I became a senior program director for a pretty big um, personal development company. And I, I became a facilitator. I traveled all over the world. I delivered those programs to thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Um, and then about four or five years later, I really felt as if it was time to go out and do my own thing and do my own thinking. And uh, I've been doing that ever since. I've been growing a, I have a very small coaching business, but I have quite the online presence and I'm out to make a difference with as many people as I possibly can through my books and courses and stuff like that. I think it's absolutely incredible. I think there's a lot of guys who are listening to this. I mean, people are listening to this. A lot of them are into self-development, but there's a lot of guys who are listening to this who maybe are earlier in this process just discovering self-development or they have friends who are in the exact same place that you were. And there's a point where I was at that place as well because I think there's sort of this like mythology in society as men, we're just supposed to have it together. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think we just, I think we just, especially I notice like in, in, in our society, but it's prevalent in other ones too, but 
it's just not something we've got our eye on. We've got our eye on the bank balance. We've got our eye on our waistline. We've got our eye on, you know, like our hobbies and our pastimes. But we're not really looking at, am I a better me than I was two years ago? And like, no, and I mean like legit, not do I feel better, but what's the, the ground that I've taken as a human being? And again, not my bank balance. Like, am I... Do I lose my temper just as easily as I did two years ago? Am I more loving now than I've ever been? Am I more, you know, do I do I operate with more of a sense of integrity than I've ever done before? Those are the kind of like milestones you got to be measuring yourself against. Not like not just you know that I make more money and I drive a nicer car. When you were at that workshop, what were some of the things that really stood out to you or now stand out to you in your memory that you found so profound? Well, I'd never really, most people would say they're aware. You know, most people say, yeah, I'm a pretty aware human being. I, I invite people to consider you're not. I invite people to consider the idea that you're totally checked out, that, that what you're calling aware is in fact asleep. And that awareness is not a destination, but rather a way of life. Like you're constantly discovering how checked out you are. Um, and, and in that workshop, I really saw what it was like for somebody to live with me. In reality, not just my idea of what it was like to live with me, but in reality, what was it like to be a friend of mine? What was it like to be, you know, to be in love with me? What was it like to be a parent of me? What was it like to be a sibling of me? And when I looked and if I set aside all of the stuff that I told myself, which was pretty, pretty thick shellac of BS that I'd built up over decades, when I looked at the stone cold reality, it wasn't pretty. It wasn't like, oh yeah, the best friend, the best employee or the best, you know, it was like, oh no, I mean, that's not good behavior. Oh my gosh, why did I say that? And what was that really all about? And it was this kind of uncovering of what, um, I had made okay about myself that in the cold light of day just was not okay. How was that exposed? Like, how did that come to fruition where you... Well, you hear other people talking and you're thinking, oh, listen, this person, oh, that's horrible. And then a moment later, I'm thinking, wait a minute, I'm doing that. One of the ones that's very... um it's very uh, prevalent for us as human beings is our addiction to being right. And it's like an addiction, like we got hopped up on it. And so we'd rather be right than in love. So in relationships, for instance, you'll find your, you get dug in about being right. There's lots of different ways for handling being right. Some people just go quiet and nod their head, right? which is like in a, a withhold. But uh, other people, like, they'll take it all the way down the light and they'll prove to the person, like, they won't let it go, like, they're like a dog with a bone about it. Now, some people might go, well, you know, when you're right, you're right. That's that's accurate. But there's a thing called being right, like a way of being, like an emotional state that you're in, which includes somebody else now has to be wrong. Now, again, you don't feel like you're making somebody wrong. You feel as if you're just proving your point. All of which will cause pretty significant discourse and fracture in your love relationships and in your friendships. 
but you'll kind of pay lip service to it, think people are past it, but it doesn't. Those things are cumulative. They start to grow arms and legs. They become like a growth in your relationships that eat away at your connection to other people. And, you know, it increases as you age. We become very much so more isolated, more isolated, more isolated, less exposed. And like I said, more addicted to that that pathway of righteousness, self-righteousness, self-affirming one's own behavior, rather than dealing with what's it going to take for me to have great, loving, profound relationships with others. Earlier you talked about awareness. Can you define what that means for somebody who's listening? Um, I can define what it means for me. I don't, you know, one of one of my things, one of the fields that I like to kind of speak from is phenomenology, which is the as lived experience of something, which I can't give you the as lived experience of something. Only you have an as lived experience of something. So for me, when when I become aware of something, it changes my life. Like I no longer do what I did before. So it, I'm, I'm compelled to act in new ways. When I know something, I'm not compelled to act in new ways. I, and many times I just keep acting the same way I did. So I might, um, I might know that I spend money I don't have. And I might know that I keep doing that. And I might know that I'm putting myself in a bigger financial hole than I've ever been in before. But that doesn't stop me doing it. Why? Because my awareness of that thing is limited to its knowing. Now, if I started to approach the way that I spend money like a subconscious way to prove a point about myself and life, like I actually started to get like the visceral experience of the life that I'm living and that spending money is a way to keep me tied to that life, to keep the struggle intact. And I continue to explore that for myself until I start to realize, like, I started coming to terms with what am I actually doing with my life? This isn't about spending money. This is about having my life have a certain kind of flavor or a certain nature. And I'm subconsciously driven to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. And I look out at the carnage of my life and the mess I've made and the holes I've gotten myself into and the damage I've done. I'm starting to get a little closer to something called awareness. I think this is absolutely awesome. I have a question. If someone's listening to this and they feel like their life is a mess and they're not really sure why, how do they begin to identify what the root causes are? Yeah, I, I, I would say, look, there's, there is value in, in getting to what I would call getting to the source or something. Okay, There is value in it. But I think as human beings, by and large, we have put, way too much emphasis on getting to the cause of something rather than just stop doing it. So we spend, you know, hours, days, weeks, months, years, just, you know, at a loss as to why we do something and, you know, like compelled to work that out rather than changing my actions. So as, as human beings, we live our lives at the crossroads between how we feel and the reality of our lives. So on one hand, that's how I feel about my life. And then on the other hand, that's how my life is actually going. And, you know, when sometimes when you talk to people about feelings, they, they, they tend to relate to what I'm saying, like it's some kind of sensitivity, like, 
you know, like you're hurt or you're damaged. It's not. My feelings can be something like frustration and anger and resentment and determination. Like those are feelings too. Um, and so, so as human beings, we we've become like so myopic about changing how we feel, like that that's going to make the difference, right? So, you know, I feel disconnected from people. I'll, I'll get the connection book and work on that. Or, you know, I feel like I have no confidence. Let me do some confidence courses. Now, all the while, when you're doing that work, your friends are getting further away and you're taking less ground to work. So I, I say to people, like, you know, my life is a mess, like a statement, is a subjective phenomenon. You're in, that's a, that's a creation and language that you're putting yourself in that, might have some reflection in your life, but I guarantee you it's not fully reflected in your life. That is, my life is a mess is not an accurate statement. It's a blanket statement made to just describe a bunch of crap that you have no power with. So I say to people, you got you to keep setting aside how you feel about your life and take a look at it and say, what's it going to take for me to make a change there? Like really, like what? not what's it going to take like, oh, well, if I had more confidence, it would be different. But literally, like, what are the actions one would take such that this area of my life was starting to alter? So, you know, you know, a no confidence example might be at work. I get on a conference calls and typically I don't say anything. And starting this week, I'm going to start talking on the conference calls. I'm going to start asking questions. I might not feel confident, but I'm certainly going to start taking the actions of someone who is. And I don't feel that way. And it's not fake it till you make it. It's literally like I'm going to constitute myself with the actions of confidence, even though I might not feel that way. Here's what you'll see. Your life starts to take a different direction in that area. It makes me think of physical walking, right? So you're walking in one direction and you make a conscious choice that you're going to step into another direction. And if you take enough steps, you'll eventually end up in a completely different place. And you're just describing doing that with your feelings or habits, like being aware of the friction in your life and beginning to take steps towards a solution in that direction until you find one, I think. Is this where you're going with this? Yeah, look, here's, here's a reality for people to confront. Your life will not change by thinking differently. I hear a lot of this, change your thoughts, change your life. That's not true. That is not true. The only way your life changes, and I mean like you can take this to the bank, the only way your life changes is by acting differently. So you can think differently and still lie on the sofa and watch Netflix. But if you act differently, if you say, I am not going to lie on the sofa and watch Netflix right now, I'm getting up, I'm, I'm getting in the car and I'm driving to the gym and I'm going to spend 45 minutes in there working on my body, that's a new action. Now, you might still have the same thoughts, like, I want to line the sofa, I want to watch Netflix, I can't do this, it's too hard, it's boring, I don't like it. You can have all those thoughts, you can have all that, that internal state, and yet you're still acting in a new way. And I say to people, if you want your life to change, you'll have to take your old thoughts with you. They're more, they're more than likely not going to change. You're going to have to act with them there like a presence with you. As people go through this process, there's a lot of fear, right? And there's a lot of uncertainty. There's just like, there's unknown. And I think for a lot of people, 
that holds them back? What can they do to begin to embrace that uncertainty? And I think if you look in your life, you've had plenty of occasions where you've stepped into the unknown and you've done it. So you had plenty of occasions, you know, your first day at grade school, your first day at middle school, your first day at high school, first time you ever went in a swimming pool, um, the first time you ever used a credit card, the first, you, you've had plenty of times where you stepped into the uncertainty. Um, as human beings, we're averse to uncertainty. We don't like it. You know, we don't. We love the certain. And again, that's part of the kind of paradox of being a human being. Like we yearn for the new, yet we're compelled to keep creating the certain. So, you know, that's why moving out is so upsetting for a lot of people. Changing job is so upsetting. Ending a relationship is so upsetting. Why? Because it it upsets the known, even when the known is miserable. Like if you're not happy with your life, people would rather be certain and unhappy than uncertain in pursuit of this thing called satisfaction, happiness, fulfillment, accomplishment. We'd rather just be like, oh, yeah, I'll do it next year. I'll get to it. It's it's a completely human thing. It's not unique to you. It's not some psychological issue you've got. And what I say to people is there is no thing as, such thing as certainty. It does not exist anywhere in the universe. There is no certainty. It's an illusion. It's a... It's a human bait and switch. And, you know, you gotta, you gotta realize like where new stuff happens, where your life takes, you know, these kind of paradigm shifts or monumental leaps in effectiveness, it's in the uncertain. And what we tend to do as human beings when we do those things, when we have those kind of quantum shifts in our effectiveness, what we try and do is stabilize it, like keep it, right? Oh, yeah, that was the secret, that thing that I just did. It's not the thing that you did. It's 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 like the nature of the thing you did. And the nature of your thing you did when you took great ground in your life was in that, was when you were present to the uncertainty, when you were dancing in it. And I say to people, look, you got to be a little more you got to be a little more calmed by the notion that even when things are uncertain, you'll come through it. How do you know that? Look at your track record. You've done it time and again. Going to college was uncertain. Asking somebody out on a date was uncertain. Somebody say yes. Somebody says no. You're exposed. You're vulnerable. I get it. So what? Yeah, I mean, there's deep, deep truth in the things that you're saying. I mean, you think about every day, even if you have a schedule for your day, when you wake up, that day never follows exactly the way <laughs> you would think it might, right? And as human beings, we we fight to tame things and structure them and control them. And then we often run in fear that we're going to lose control of these things. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I'm not saying be like crazy, like, you know, like, oh, well, let me shave my head and run naked down the street. Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, you, you know, it's got to be within some kind of, paradigm or some kind of range right but but risk is a is a very natural and you know very inspiring um, um aspect of what it is to be alive well it's where we find meaning right in growth well we can do yeah absolutely i think sometimes people get mixed up like their thoughts between reality so how do you separate 
that. And if somebody is trapped in their thoughts, uh, maybe it's negativity or a swirl of fears, how do they work through that? What advice would you give them? Yeah, a couple of things. So we are all trapped in our thoughts. Okay, it's not somebody, it's everybody. We are all, you know, people talk about self-limiting beliefs like they know what that is. Your every thought you're having is a self-limiting belief. People don't, if you knew what your self-limiting beliefs actually were, they would no longer be self-limiting beliefs because you'd see them for what they are. For each of us, self-limiting belief is the truth. That's how it really is. It's not a self-limiting belief. Work is hard. My boss is a jerk. That's not a self-limiting belief. That's how it is. Except it's not. You know, your boss is a jerk is your opinion. Maybe three or four people working beside you feel the same, but maybe your boss's husband doesn't feel the same. So that, that then then that they're a jerk is subjective. Therefore, it's not objective. Therefore, it's not, you know, it's not nailed down. So I think you have to first accept the notion. I'm going to say accept it just, you know, really with a shrug of the shoulders, like this is how it is. How it is for me is I have thoughts like everybody else. And I think the second step you got to understand is that there are certain thoughts that you have that you all too readily jump into bed with. So you accept them as true and you run with them and you have the life of those default repetitive thoughts. Like I'm not good enough. I can't do it. You know, whatever the thing is. Um, and, and, and that you have thoughts doesn't necessarily have to be reflected in your life in the same way that you're having those thoughts. And it really is like starting to become more of the observer than the thoughts rather than the enactor of the thoughts. I invite people to consider that their most negative emotional states are like a smoke screen. It's, it's an element of your life where you get to indulge something so that you don't have to deal with the reality of your existence. You don't have to deal with that you're failing at work so you get to be upset at your boss. You don't have to deal with that you're not great at being vulnerable or showing your emotions with your wife so you get to blame her for being a nag. You don't have to deal with that your finances are in the mess they're in. So you get to talk about the economy or the pay scale at work or that you never got a break or you never went to college or your mom never showed you how to do this or your dad never taught you how to do that. It's all a smokescreen so that you don't have to deal with the reality of your existence. Which all sounds pretty negative right now, but, it, you know, whatever. So I say to people, look, your life, your success in life can be found in the degree to which you can keep a promise to yourself. And I really mean like if you are someone right now and you're making eight bucks an hour and you have a dream of being a millionaire, that is completely relying upon one thing and one thing only. Can you keep a promise to yourself? And really, can you keep it? I mean, like I'm making this promise and this is now on like Donkey Kong. And I'm willing to deal with everything I would need to deal with in the fulfillment of this promise. And that nothing in my life is bigger than this promise. Not the weather, not my body, not how smart I think I am, not what I know, not who I don't know, not that I currently make $8.50 an hour. Like, like this is happening and this is happening by, you know, two years or three years or five years from now. And that today 
these are the actions that I'm taking in service of that promise. And that every single day, I'll be challenging myself to deal with the actions that I need to take in the fulfillment and that, of that promise until that promise is fulfilled. Now, if you look at what I'm saying, if you have a promise that lives outside of you, so, you know, your emotions live inside of you, your promises live outside of you. And every day of your life and the fulfillment of that promise, you'll go through a range of emotional states from resignation to anger, frustration, sadness, grief. You'll have a whole range of emotional states, yet the promise remains consistent. Your job is to bridge the gap between where you are and the action that you now need to take in the fulfillment of that promise. That's it. And every promise that you make, whether it's a big one or a little one, it invites a life into your life. So if you're going after making a million dollars or $500,000 or $10,000, whatever it is, that invites a certain set of conditions into your life that weren't there until you made that promise. Your life is now about this thing, not like a hope. I don't hope to make $10,000. I'm either doing it or not doing it. Not like I'm going to try. I don't try to make $10,000. I'm either going to do it or not do it. It's it, I invite it into my life and I start organizing my life around some of the most profound promises, the kind of things that inspire me, the kind of things that change the trajectory of my life and ultimately changes outcomes. And I keep doing that in my life. I keep creating these kind of outcomes, the kind of stuff that inspires me. And all the while, I'm working on my ability. I'm working on that muscle to, to fulfill on those promises because those promises are bigger than how I feel. For a lot of people, this unknown, right? Like there's this unknown path, especially if they're doing something different than what their friends are doing, their coworkers are doing, their family's doing. And I think as human beings, especially as children, we're conditioned to sort of follow a path that somebody else lays out for us. And oftentimes we're graded or judged based on our ability to follow that process. You're talking about curating or cultivating something in the unknown. How does somebody do that if they've... Well, anything new you're going to do, you've never done before anyway. That's the same for everybody. It's not special to you. So, you know, I'd never written a book before, but I did it. I had no idea how that was going to turn out. I quite frankly didn't care how it was going to turn out. The intention was to write a book. Um, it's the same with getting married. People, are, people who get married for the first time, it's a whole new world. It's like, what am I getting into? It's a state change. So, again, this is one of these things that people want to talk about, that they're conditioned. like. And then you're already starting from one foot nailed to the floor. The way I like to look at it with people is, okay, so you had this upbringing. Your parents thought they wanted you to do this. And you went to the school and you got those qualifications or didn't get those qualifications. Okay, I get all that. Now what? And the reality is the now what is the most important thing. Then now what? And it might be like, well, I don't know what to do. Well, that's probably the first thing you should start working out then. What do I do? And maybe I should spend two or three months 
formulating a pathway, and then I should start acting on that pathway. So you're either going to subscribe to the notion that you're stuck or that you're somehow weighted down. You know, I never went to college. I never did that. I never had the benefits of, you know, some really, uh, you know, really intelligent people influencing me and making a difference. I, mean, I never had that. But I, as an adult man, I thought, okay, I never had it. So what do I do now? Well, maybe I should read some books. Maybe that'll help. Okay, that's a good start. And there was lots of pathways I could have taken. I could have gone back to college. I could have, you know, contacted some people online and, you know, asked for their, their advice and, and, and most importantly, acted upon that. But I, but I chose not to be stopped by something that's already happened. That that's, does not serve me. It doesn't serve me to have what I'm about to do next be shackled by the, by the fact that I didn't go to college. Okay, I didn't go to college. Well, I need to take that into account then. But it's not going to stop me doing what I'm about to do. So I don't, I don't, uh, I'm really not a big fan of using what's already happened as some kind of measure as to what needs to happen next. I'm, I'm way more interested in what I think I can't do. I'm way more interested in that now. I've not always been that way, but I am now. I'm way more interested in what I think isn't possible for me. Because I know that if I give myself to that and I get into that and I start to look around there and I start to explore life in that world, um, I am always surprised at my facility for actually doing it. I think this is absolutely incredible. I, I want to go back and use a specific example. The first one that comes to my mind is the book. Maybe you can explain or, or share another part of your life where you apply this. But you said, I'm going to write this book. Right. And I, I pull up your book online and it's got an astonishing amount of incredible reviews. And like you said, you're like, well, I didn't go to college. There's people who went to the best universities in the world, uh, studied writing and fantasize about having the response that you've gotten from your book. And so as a person who says, I'm going to write a book, you're like, I'm going to write a book. I don't really care how it turns out. I'm just going to, I'm going to write this book you're going into the unknown. You are starting from uh, a deficit compared to a lot of other people, or you can argue that. What was that process like for you? How did you step into the unknown and look around? How did you learn to write a book? Uh, I'm, I'm wondering if we could use that as an example so people can visualize and see, and then maybe we can come up with a, a second one. Yeah. All right. So, so firstly, you know, I had a number of people over the years say, you know, you should write a book. And every time I just rolled my eyes, I was just, I, I, I mean, I don't even know where to start. Where do you start? Like, how do you construct a book? What would I want to say in it? How could I say it? You know, and what was really when I when I said, OK, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing here, but I'm going to do this. And, you know, for me, the process of writing a book began with opening up the laptop, clicking on a word file. And um, which again, I'm not even particularly proficient at words right now, but still I thought I'm just going to write down what I would want to write down. And what emerged was my voice was how I wanted to say it. Now, there was one thing that kept me on track the whole pro in terms of the content, 
So there's the process and there's the content for me, right? The process I'll get to in a minute, which was a, you know, total cluster as far as I'm concerned. But the but the content, there, there was one thing that I kept asking myself is, would I want to read this? Right? Now, I wasn't particularly interested in having people admire me or, you know, I wasn't particularly interested in having people go, oh, what a wonderful writer. I mean, you know, it just wasn't. How eloquent or not eloquent or, you know, I just, that wasn't on my radar. I wasn't out to impress anybody. My, the whole point of the book for me was, would I read it? Would I read this book? And, and the more I got into it, I started to ask myself, how is this book making a difference for me as I'm reading it? So I kept bringing myself like into the moment with it, like, Oh yeah, that totally would make a difference. Right, this thing I'm right now, right now would make a difference in the area of this part of my life or this part of my life. So that was that was again like all influencing the content, okay, and and guiding me. And I, and I, and it was I was absolutely committed that this book made a difference. And my commitment was doesn't necessarily make you feel better. You know, feeling better. You can do that with a martini and a slice of pizza. I was more interested in how does this change somebody's actions right now as they're reading it. So again, to me, that's more content, content, content. The process for me was a daily barrage of my internal dialogue about my ability. So every day, you know, I would be resigned about it. I'd be completely, you know, dispirited. I'd be down about it. I'd be telling myself, I'd catch myself in these little hooked or looped conversations about that I'm not smart enough, that I shouldn't be doing it. And then every day I did what I talked about earlier in this conversation, which was I stuck to the promise. The promise was I'm going to finish the book. And I had these various bands of resistance, like, Oh, I don't want to do when I take like two weeks off and and I would buy myself off with this nonsense like, oh yeah, I need time to think, which was just nonsense. It was all just my my subconscious self, I guess, is was way more interested in my having a life of that I'm not smart enough than having something in my life that might contradict that. Um but then I again I I knew the book was done when I would read it. And I thought to myself, I, I, this is a book I would buy. I would buy this book. I didn't know if other people would buy it. I don't really care. I was more like, yeah, I would buy this book. This is my book. This is a, something I could stand behind. And uh, and then I just released it. I just like did it all and self-published it on Amazon. And, uh, you know, when my, my aim and it wasn't even my initial aim. This was my aim. My aim was to sell 2,000 copies. If anybody knows anything about books, 2,000 copies is a heady number. Um, most books sell 50 copies <laughs> or 25. So I had this kind of grand plan, like I could sell 2,000 copies. And um, so I went at that and I did the same process. Like, well, how do you do that? I don't know what I'm doing. How do I get to people from my limited resources? Like, what do I do? And I, and I just kept coming at it and coming at it and coming at it and coming at it, even though I didn't feel like I could, should, or was even 
you know, in any way remotely capable of doing it. Um, and then in the first five and a half months, we sold over 30,000 copies. Yes, it's amazing. It's a beautiful story of perseverance. And it sounds like, and tell me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like you use that commitment to yourself to just keep driving past the internal voice where it sounded like your ego was trying to protect itself. Well, yeah, I mean, look, if you were to sit in a chair and close your eyes for five minutes and with a sole intention of listening to yourself talk, you'll, you'll notice like it's a very familiar tone, has a very familiar nature. And I would say the only difference between me and a lot of people is I see that, I accept that, and I really accept it. Like I'm not trying to change the internal dialogue. It's a fruitless exercise. I'm not trying to make it get quieter. I'm not trying to get it to be kinder. It's there. And I, I can either live that life, and I can, I could live that life given by, orchestrated by, guided by my default internal sentences. Or I could live some other life. And I choose to live some other life. I'm, you know, I have a say in that. That's the one thing that I do have a say in is I'm either living life on automatic, like a reaction machine or something else, some created phenomenon, something that I invent, something that I pursue, something that I hold myself to when emotionally and physiologically my body is screaming to go in another direction. I don't go in that direction. Why? I know how that ends up. I know where this goes. I, I know where my life goes when I'm living my life by default. I know where it goes. It's not pretty. So I choose another route. I take actions that very often conflict with what I would do by default. Not for the sake of doing that. No, because it's part of a greater construct that I've made. And um, that's my life. My life is accepting what's there, accepting the wiring. I appreciate it sometimes. If there's ever a moment to survive, I know I'll survive. But at the same time, realizing that I'm not limited to it. Like there's a life beyond a magical life, a wide and wondrous expansive life that exists beyond who I've become by default. It's almost like you're you're aware of the voice, you're accepting it in the same way you would accept any other sort of friction that might be part of life. Yeah, I accept my toenails. <laughs> I accept my hair. I accept the size of my nose. I accept that, you know, I have certain tastes that I'm more drawn to when I eat and drink. And I accept that there's a noise in my head that's not me. And it took a long time for me to realize it wasn't me. Because if it was me, I would have that voice say something else. I'm not aligned with what it says most of the time. So it can't be me then. <laughs> it must be some hair trigger from a past that I'm no, I no longer have any interest in. Dating coach Chris Luna here. This is the perfect time to take a quick break to talk to you about three simple things that you can do to dramatically change your life. First, listen to this entire podcast 
and then subscribe through SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher. This way you'll immediately be notified every time we share a new release. If you listen and apply the ideas we discuss on these podcasts, it will change your life forever. Second, go to craftchrisma.com, create an account, and become a member of our community. There you can read articles, listen to podcasts, watch videos, ask us questions, and document your journey in our forums. Great men don't become great on their own. All great men are members of a community, and Craft Charisma is your community. Finally, if you're serious, and I know that you are, about making massive changes to your life as quickly as possible, check out our live coaching programs on our website. Craft Charisma live programs are the fastest way to improve your dating and social life. And who knows? Attend our live programs, let us get to know you, and you may end up as a member of the Craft Charisma team. Again, thank you for listening. Now back to the podcast. Do you find that this also comes up in your internal dialogue? Does it ever come up in your dreams? Yeah, I mean, look, if I, if I was to explain to you who I am by default, right? Who I am by default is somebody who um, doesn't think they're smart enough. It's somebody who looks at other people, all people, and relates to them like they don't care. Is somebody who has a fundamental view of life that it's hard, that everything's hard. If you take that, like this guy who's not smart enough, who sees other people like they don't care, and whose fundamental view of life is that it's hard, that little sphere of thought is not just a sphere of thought. It's a way of living. It's a way of surviving what's actually there. And how I survive the life that's actually there is by superimposing what I think is there on it. So I perpetuate this life. I, it has to be this way. Like it, I, Life has to show up for me in terms of how smart or not smart I am. People have to show up for me in terms of where I, whether they care or not. And fundamentally, I'm just out to find out that they don't care. And life must show up in terms of hard, not hard for me. That's it. Now, it took me a decade to uncover that, like to actually see it for myself. And in fact, my next book is about this, about people finally uncovering the beating heart of their internal dialogue. Like, what is it made up of? And what does yours specifically say? And what kind of life does it specifically give you? And in the, the more you see that, the more you're like, it's like your eyes are bulging out of your head. You're like, oh, my gosh. Like, no wonder that relationship went the way it went. No wonder my finances are the way. No wonder I'm in the career that I'm in. I'm guided by the same noise. And, you know, again, as I said earlier, I want people to get there's a distinction to be made. There's a line to be drawn between the voice and all that it suggests. And you, and you are not a victim to that voice until you say you are. And, the, and you need to get, if you experience yourself as a victim, I want you to get that as a self-perpetuating myth. And at some point, you know, when people often ask me this, they'll say, how do I get over my past? How do I get past my past? That's a really quick way of doing it. You could get over your past today, all of it, the whole thing. I don't care whether you were beaten, raped, whatever. And those are horrible things, and there's a horrible, often a horrible aftermath. 
And some people, what I'm about to say, some people hear this is really too harsh or uncaring, right? And it's not. It's I, I want people to get my commitment to them that I would deal with myself in such a way that I would say this. Look, I want to wrap my arms around people as much as anybody. I want people to get like, you can do it. But but you got to invade the kind of sanctity or, or the sensitivity that you've allowed yourself to wallow in. And I say to people, you will get over your past when you start to confront how you've used it to justify the life that you've currently got. And the moment you see how you've used it to justify the life that you currently have, you might get a little sick of yourself. You might say to yourself, you know what? I'm not willing to accept this about myself anymore. I'm not willing to wallow in this anymore. I'm not willing. You know, and I mean, like, you know, I've coached people through horrific things, things that would, you know, you would cry at the thought of a human being having to endure in a situation like this. And not one or two people. I mean, like tens of thousands of people. And I have all the compassion in the world for them. But at some point, you have to ask yourself, how much longer am I willing to have my life be defined by this? And there's only one person that can bring an end to that, and that's you. And that, in my opinion, that takes confronting yourself. In that time of confrontation, you will find a resolution. You will find like a, like a power and a peace of mind and, and, and a growth that allows you to live life at levels that you previously never thought were available to you. I think this is really interesting. You talked about how somebody up until this point, how they've used this perception of themselves to get the life that they want. How do they recognize that? Because oftentimes when we're in a situation and we're not, I'm, I'm thinking about the idea of space, right? Like if you're in outer space and there's no bodies, you wouldn't know that you're in space. Not, not human bodies, but no planets. There are no rocks. There's nothing else there. You'd be in space and you wouldn't know that there anything else exists. There often has to be more than one point of reference for us to be able to see things from another perspective. So how does somebody, if, if they're living this and they're not aware, but they maybe they, or maybe they are because they feel something's off, but they're not quite sure how to define this space that they've created for themselves. How do they figure that out? Well, I think you've just got to look at any area of life where you're disempowered. So that is any area of life that's not going the way you want it to. But you, there's got to be a little bit of a double-edged sword about this because as human beings, we have this unbelievable capacity to make okay what's fundamentally not okay. So we learn to live with it as another way to say it. So when somebody asks you how your life's doing, you kind of shrug your shoulders. Yeah, it's fine. But you don't realize how much BS is actually in it and how much you've, it's been in your life to such a degree that you're now okay with it. So another way to say that is people tolerate the lives they have. But sure, the first place you got to look is where am I losing power? So is it with my body? Is it with my finances? Is it in love relationships? Where am I losing power? And where is it not going? The way that that I deep down might think I'd like it to go. And then you start to examine, well, 
what life do I get to live with this going the way that it's going currently? So, you know, you might get to be independent. You might, you might get to hide out in the slurry of hard work with an absence of substantive results. Or you might get to hide out in your analysis. Like you, if you look in your life, you'll see that there's swathes of your life that have been in what I would call some kind of negative state for a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 20 years. And you've tolerated that. You've made that okay. And it's a way of explaining this life to yourself. That's how you do it. It's like, that's the real, and it's done over time. So you don't notice you're doing it, but you are doing it. You are, you know, most of the social sciences would say a human being turns out the way they turn out in most part through nurture. You know, I mean, I, I get neuroscience and genetics and that, 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 but I'm talking about for the most part, okay? Most people have no sense that they did a lot of that nurturing themselves. They mostly put it down to my teacher, my mom, my dad, you know, that kind of stuff. So, I, you know, I really want people to get like, you're at where you're at through a series of conclusions that you came to about yourself, about others, and about life. And again, it would be like, if I look at, take any area of my life and I say, well, how would I want this life to be then? Like, if I could have anything there, how would I want it to go? That, what begins there is a seed of, of a created life. Now you're like, boy, if I could have anything, what would I do? How would this really turn out for me? Then you begin installing some of those promises you start to what i would call realize on a future an indescribable uncertain previously unseen kind of future and i want people to get it's so doable it's so just doable it's like your heart's desire but you need to authentically fully and comprehensively align yourself with that future and give up this kind of ascribing your prog progress to either your past or some current predicament that you're in. It's about producing results in the face of adversity, but it's really when it comes down to it, you'll see it that it's your self-generated adversity. Yeah, I mean, there's so many really cool ideas that you have here. My next question was around uh, relentlessness and I mean, you started to explore this idea already, but as we go down this new path, right? Someone's listening to this, they go into the unknown. They are going to have obstacles. They are going to have frictions. They're going to have things that are going to pop up, things that aren't going to work. I mean, earlier you were, you were talking and I kept thinking about somebody who wins the gold medal in the Olympics, right? Uh, and it doesn't matter really what event it is. There's going to be days where in that process of their training, they're not going to want to get up. Their stomach is going to hurt. They're going to be injured. They're going to, things are going to be wrong. They're going to have life situations. Maybe it's a breakup in a relationship. Maybe someone close to them passes away or gets sick. Um, like things are going to go wrong. And yet every day they take this commitment to themselves and they work and they work and work. And, 
to become the best in the world at something for a moment of time. And for someone who's listening to this, they're making this own commitment to themselves, whatever that may be. And they start to face these obstacles and adversities. How do they become more resilient and how do they push through these obstacles? Yeah, I get that. I totally understand. And, and the first thing you got to get is there is no obstacle will stop you until you agree that it does. And when it comes down to it, that's what you're actually up against. You're up against your own agreement. You're not up against the obstacle. The obstacle says this, right? So it might be like, you know, someone close to you passes away and you're deeply hurt by that. Now, the conventional wisdom would say, well, that changes everything. Maybe, right? And you're saying that changes everything. But does it? No, and I don't mean in a cold-hearted way. I mean, like, does that mean your life trajectory now has to change? Like, you know, I mean, there's a lady who has no arms, who flies commercial airlines. Conventional wisdom would say, well, that's not happening. And, you know, this is somebody who looked at that and said, well, I get that, but how could it happen? And so she kept stepping into that and stepping into that and stepping into that. So the first thing you're up against is not obstacles in life, but rather your agreement to the obstacle. Like you're aligned with it. Like, you know, bad weather's coming in. Yeah, I'm probably going to be late. Really? Traffic's bad. I'm going to be late. Really? What about leaving earlier? Well, I can't get up at that time. Well, why not? So it's really about causing yourself to step outside of the readily accepted norms that you've created for yourself, number one. And then you talk about this thing called relentlessness. What is relentlessness? It's not a fortitude. It's not uh, some kind of internal feeling like or a determination. Relentlessness for me, when somebody's truly being relentless, is when they're at their lowest, is when all emotional connection to what I'm doing is long since abandoned. When the consensus among the people around me is that it's not worth pursuing. When the evidence that I had for doing this thing is slowly been draining away. And yet I keep taking the actions. That's relentless. It's when every ounce of evidence has vacated the situation. And all I'm left with is I'm either doing it or not doing it. And, you know, I had those, had those episodes many times in writing the book when all evidence for writing a book had long since left the building and its, and its value and why I would do it. And I, you know, had compelling reasons like I should focus on this thing or that thing or this thing or that thing and forget a book and you can do a book later and you know you know a dad I've, I've got three young children i'm married you know i have a wife that demands of me yet i kept acting in alignment with what i said i would do and to me that's being relentless it's when there's everything you thought would be there when everything you 
thought should be there is no longer there. And it's just you and that thing and your actions. Yeah, I think this is really great, great advice. You write about this idea of expecting nothing and accepting everything. Can you expand on that? And for people who are sort of controlling and attached outcomes, what are some things that they can do to become more present? Well, again, you know, I think what you got to get is um, control is an illusion. There is no control. And human beings, I think, invented that to deal with the chaos of the reality. You know, because this is, we live in a chaotic existence. I mean, you know, any one of us could just die right now, like gone. Like, you know, your the cup of coffee sitting on the table, still sitting there, lukewarm, and you're on the floor, dead. And those bills that you'd laid out to get paid tomorrow, they're still sitting there unpaid. And your your closet still smells like you. And your bed still has the shape and warmth of your body embedded into it. And you're gone. And you'll never be back. And so I think we 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 kind of adhere to this notion that somehow we have a say overall in it when you don't. And there's a great deal of freedom from disengaging yourself with that attachment. Now you got to be you got to be a little you got to be very responsible when you're listening to what I'm saying. I would say this to all your your, your listeners. You, you ought to really listen to what I'm saying with a high degree of integrity and responsibility rather than jumping to some conclusion. So when I say be unattached, that doesn't mean to say I have this kind of laissez-faire attitude towards something. I can go for something and be fully in on it and fully committed to it. But when I say I'm unattached to it, like if it doesn't turn out, it's not the end of my life. It's not even the end of what I'm currently doing. It just didn't work. And it's time for me to now focus on the next thing. So I say to people, you know, um, expect nothing. The greater degree of expectation that you have, the more messed up you'll get. The more tied up in knots you'll get. If you look in your relationships, it's a great way to see your expectations. I would say almost all of your arguments with your loved ones are based in hidden or unspoken expectations that you have or they have, sometimes both. And if you can actually notice and find out and discover and start to see your expectations at work, you would see you're tying yourself in knots most of the time. Um. And then accept everything. So, you know, a lot of my clients are what I would call high performers in certain areas of their life. One of the reasons why they're getting coached by me is that they're not high performers in other areas of their life. But if I was to look at those people and their high performance areas of life, I would see they have this kind of holistic view of what they're doing. So that is, they know all the ways that this could turn out. They know that this could go really well. And they're really aware of that it could also go to hell in a handbasket. And they're ready. 
So as things roll out, they kind of have this acceptance of it. And if it's not going well, it doesn't mean you say they like it. But it just doesn't have that same kind of grip on them. There's not, not a lot of survival on it because they, they, they're not blindsided by anything. Because they see it. So if you want to be powerful to deal with your life when it's not going the way you want it to go, you must become someone who can accept something just the way it now is. Because when I accept how it is right now, there's now a little bit of a room here for me to do something about it. When I don't accept this thing the way it is, I'm now wrestling with this thing. It's now like eating me up. So, um, and it's a practice. You got to practice acceptance. Like, you know, look, somebody's listening to this right now and your girlfriend just left you. I got it. So what? Oh, I'm upset and my heart's broken. I get it. And so what? At some point, it's got to start showing up for you that way. Like, I accept that for what it is. And when I accept it the way it is, I don't even make it mean anything. It that my girlfriend left me doesn't mean I'm unlovable. You know, I get it, you know. And maybe she says, no, you did this and you did that. Okay, good, I get it. And maybe there's an opportunity there for me to introspect and make some changes in my life. And maybe not. But I can accept that it went the way it went. That it's not supposed to go any other way. That it actually went the way it went. And that I can, the moment that I accept that, that it went the way it went, I get increasing levels of freedom to deal with the life that's starting to show up for me as what's next. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. The other thing that happens is you're no longer reacting to the internal dialogue, right? And that creates a sense of, if you're not reacting to the things that could have happened and you're not reacting to the past, all you have is what's in front of you. And, and I can imagine for someone going through this right now, if they take this advice, it would give them immense clarity. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, if you crash your car, getting upset about that won't uncrash it. You got to accept there's a dent in my car. Now what? My girlfriend just left me. Now what? I'm either going to empower myself in this time in my life or I'm just going to get totally attached to this and I'm going to get totally wrapped up in my own internal state and this will be a miserable period for me. Yeah, There's so much power in choice, right? Once we use it to make our lives better. Yeah, I think I think the first thing you got to realize is that you always have one. You have a choice. You have a say in the matter of who you are when faced with what you're faced with. And the choice is it goes one of two ways. You have a choice to be who you would be by default or by reaction or be someone that you'd rather be. Be the kind of human being that you'd rather be. And again, it's it's not like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be calm about this. That's not there automatically. It's like it's a practice. Like I'm going to bring calmness to this conversation or I'm going to bring confidence to this situation. or I'm going to express some level of understanding here when I'm hooked and typically want to react. Do you feel like also part of this process is recognizing attributes that you see in yourself or that you want to see in yourself and other people 
because you, earlier you talked about how you're at this event and people are talking about things that they were doing away their ways that they were reacting and you saw yourself in that and you didn't like it and if somebody's trying to figure out how do you love another person or what is kindness how, what does a kind person do or what does a person who lives with integrity do or what does real honesty look like is this all internal or is there also a process of recognizing it in other people and 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 trying to model after that i'm, I'm curious what you think the way forward for somebody is I, th I think you've got to get that people don't always act and speak in the ways that you would want them to and that you are also people. So you act and speak in ways that other people wouldn't want you to. And I often hear people say this, like this kind of honesty or authenticity, and people get that confused with giving somebody a piece of your mind. Giving someone a piece of your mind is not your authentic self. That's your jerky self when you're upset. And I don't recommend it. Why? Because you're now introducing the kind of you into your environment that in the cold light of day, you're not committed to being that you. And then people say, well, they started that. You know, it's like we go into the playground again. Uh, they, you know, they had it coming to them, right? So being authentic with people is when you be your best self. Like if you consider yourself to be a loving, understanding, connected, intuitive self, then that should be your guide. That should be what's guiding you. And again, you might not feel that way, but you got to be a little more, a little smarter about what you're putting in to the kind of liquid states of your conversation. So if what's falling out of your mouth is your most cynical, your most resentful, your most frustrated self, that's what now taints the waters of how people relate to you. Now, I will say there's a little caveat to this. That doesn't mean to say you're a doormat. So integrity also includes being very straight about what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And if somebody persists with certain behaviors that don't work for you, you literally do not have to participate. You can say, I'm unwilling to participate in that. I'm unwilling to, I'm unwilling to pursue this line of conversation. I don't like where it's taking me emotionally. I don't like where it's taking you emotionally. If you're choosing to live your life that way, I get it, but I'm not. If you want to live your life in a different way, I'm right here. I'm available. I'm open. But if you're, if this is what you're committed to, then I'm choosing not to be part of it. I started to laugh while you're talking because I thought about all of us have some shit inside us, right? But we don't shit all over our friends. <laughs> if we did, it would change our relationships. I mean, that's a physical thing, right? Like, but we do this in emotional ways, right? If we're dealing with some internal struggles and we project them on the people we care about in the same way, if you were to shit on your friends, <laughs> it, it, it would probably change the relationship. <laughs> we do, we can do this in different ways. And, and I'm not saying, you know, if you're upset, pretend you're not. Right? I mean, I'm saying you can be authentic about that. You can say to somebody, look, I'm really upset right now and I'm making you wrong and I don't want to live that way. So I'm going to end this conversation and I think we should approach it at a different time. And I want you to know I'm not avoiding the conversation. It's just that I can't be responsible for, you know, not getting triggered and going off in some tangent that I just don't want to go off in. 
So, you know, I'm not going to participate right now. Like, it's starting to take a bit of ownership for your own triggers rather than, you made me upset or, you know, like all of that nonsense. No one makes you upset without your agreement. Oh, yeah, I would turn around them. Like, they just the way they act just annoys me. No, they act and you get annoyed. You got to keep getting that. You got to keep getting like, oh, this is what I bring to the table with this person. I bring annoyance. Right, am I going to get some mastery with my annoyance? Or am I going to have that annoyance define the playing fields of my relationships? I love the way that you talk through a lot of these things because there's an awareness of sort of what you're feeling and you are describing a way to communicate recognize what's happening and communicate that to the people that you might be speaking to in a situation. And I think as a model, I think it's going to be incredibly helpful for a lot of the people who are listening to this. You've talked a lot about relationships. Um, and this is sort of my last set of questions. What do you think are some of the worst modern relationship uh, advice or myths about modern relationships? And well, let's start with that, and I have a couple follow-up questions. Yeah. All right. So one that kind of grinds my gears a little is when I hear relationships are 50-50 or relationships are give and take, which a lot of people subscribe to. I mean, there are people right now listening to this who have just been who are currently horrified at what I just said. Why? Because they've built the relationship on it, and the relationship doesn't work. Oh, it's 50-50. It's a give and take. Um, no, I mean, I'll, let me tell you how 50-50 works out. 50-50 works out like this. One or both of you are going to become the 50-50 cops. That is, you're going to spend most of your relationship measuring how they're doing with their 50. So... Oh, yeah. See, you're not as loving as you used to be, or you spend more time with your friends than you do with me. Yeah, this isn't working out for me the way that I wanted this to work out. Now, what you don't notice is at the same time, you've now abandoned your 50. Because it's not just 50-50 like, I'll do my 50. It's, it's, I'll do my 50 as long as you're doing yours. And if you're doing 20, then I'm doing 20. What do we got now? 40. If you're doing three, I'm doing three. In fact, I might take my three away. I'm doing nothing. How connected are we? About 3%. So it's an illusion, and it's a pathway that when people set off down it, I assert, never ends well. So I say to people something very different. Um, and in fact, you know, a book that I'm currently putting together, but I won't see the light of day for a couple of years, um, really goes into like the dynamic of what it takes to be in a relationship now as opposed to 200 years ago. And it's very different now. Although based on the same premise, but it's a premise that can't stand up to modern scrutiny. So my assertion is relationships need to be reinvented. Or we're just going to keep going the way we're going. And especially marriages, you know, like over 50% of marriages end in divorce. I think the assumption is the ones that are left are happy. I don't think they are. I think there's a lot of people just hanging in there. Um, so my view of relationships is you got to look at 
what would you want this relationship to be about? Personally, like, what do you want this? Like, and if you want this relationship to be about love or adventure or connection, anything that you come up with, and it's generally no more than a handful of things, like this is what I'd like a relationship to be about. Whatever you come up with, that's actually now your job. Now, that's not how we do relationships. How we do relationships is, this is what I want a relationship. Let me go find someone who'll give me that. And then it breaks down. And then you blame them. So my assertion is, if if you want a relationship to be about romance, what are you doing about that this week? If you want a relationship to be about love and connection, what are you doing about that this week? If you want a relationship to be about uh, passion or, 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 you know, adventure, what have you organized? What are you up to this week that aligns with that? And get yourself on the hook for what you want 100% of the time. Now, most people's response to that is, well, what about them? which should tell you everything about your current relationships to being related. Because even being loved, or the experience of being loved is generated by you. It's not generated by them. So when somebody says, oh, I feel so loved by them, what's actually happening is they're taking certain actions and you personally are generating a physical experience for yourself. How to test that out? Walk up to a stranger on the street, look them dead in the eye and say, I love you. They might hit you. They might run away. So the words, I love you, don't generate love with a human being without their permission. So I want people to get on the hook for what they want relationship. Now, now, there's also a point where, well, what if I keep bringing that to the table and they're just not playing or they're playing in a way that's completely the opposite of what I was after in a relationship? Then there's a cold truth for you to face there, which might be this is over. And that's okay too. But you got to really start getting yourself on the hook for the qualities that you want to see in a relationship and stop looking over there at that other person like it's their job. Because I guarantee you their idea of where this was going or how this might play out, it's not the same as yours. Now, in an ideal situation, you would have both people be on the hook for what they want. Um, sometimes that happens and sometimes that doesn't. But often you'll find that the very nature of a relationship can shift when you start to get yourself fully invested in what you want, not to change them, but rather to bring forth what it is you want. So there's a very strong sense of personal responsibility as opposed to this dependence that I want this and this person should know and provide it for me. Right. I mean, look, my, I guess in many ways I'm a bit of an old school existentialist. You don't get out of that game without some notion of responsibility. When you talk to somebody about responsibility, they tend to have this kind of very surfacey relationship to responsibility. If you observe life from the place of responsibility, right? Now, when I say responsibility, I don't mean burden. I don't mean blame, but rather from I own this. So if you looked at your finances from I own this, if you looked at the state of your current relationship from I own this, if you looked at your body from I own this, 
if you looked at your family life, if you looked at, you know, your hopes, your dreams, your passions from I own this, you'll start to see a growing evidence for areas in those places where you haven't owned it. You blamed it on somebody else. You blamed it in something else. Or you blamed it on a mystery. Like I'm confused. I don't know what to do. And again, if you come at confusion or I don't know what to do from ownership or being responsible, you can cause breakthroughs for yourself in those areas too. I firmly am aligned with the idea that new effectiveness in life requires new levels of responsibility. And that the more you find yourself taking ownership, the more you bring your problems in-house, the more the quality of your life gets better and better and better and better. Gary, this has been absolutely incredible. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been a pleasure. And if you're listening to this, you want to learn more about Gary, about his books, about the work that he's done, about his coaching, we're going to post some links in the Craft of Charisma website and on the description for this podcast so that you can find out about him more easily. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. You're welcome, and, and thanks for making the time. And to your listeners, thanks for uh, the generosity of your listening and, and giving me some space to express some of my ideas. Thank you so much. It's dating coach Chris Thona here. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen. And we absolutely love making this podcast. We make this podcast for you. So if there's somebody that you want on the show, let me know. I will yell, scream, stand in front of their house, do everything I do to get them on the show for you. Also, don't hesitate to follow the podcast on SoundCloud and iTunes and Stitcher. You can also give us a shout out through social media, Facebook, Twitter, share it with your friends. And lastly, go to the Craft Christmas website and create an account. There you can talk about the podcast and communicate with me directly. So thank you again for taking time to listen. You will hear again from me soon.